Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. According to the Government of Canada, nearly 8 million, or 1 in 5 Canadians, live with chronic pain. People who experience chronic pain face a wide range of physical, emotional, and social challenges while suffering what's often referred to as an invisible illness. But there's hope. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Jeff Bellingham, an anesthetist and the medical director of the pain management program at St. Joseph's Healthcare London, to find out more about this important and far-ranging topic. Dr. Bellingham, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks very much for having me. So I thought I might just start, you know, with the observation that pain is such a fundamental experience. I mean, we all know it in some manner, and it strikes me it's at the sort of essence of health and, and wellness, since healthcare is in so many ways about, I guess, alleviating or, or lessening or managing pain. Right off the bat, I just wondered, what, what got you interested in the field and, and practice of pain management? Well, thanks for asking. Just to highlight what you said, it is really the number one reason why somebody will see a healthcare professional. It could be pharmacist, family physician, nurse, occupational therapist, physical therapist, for example. But to get to your question, I was originally introduced to pain management. Well, the time that it really struck me was during medical school when I went off to a rural medicine elective in Tobamori. Hmm. And I had a great experience with a family physician, Dr. George Harper. And this physician, I was really impressed with his breadth of expertise and knowledge for all sorts of different conditions. And I recall once doing a house call with him, and there was a person who had some type of a nerve pain condition. And uh, that was the first time that I was introduced to the use of something such as a, what's known as a pain-active antidepressant to help manage. And I thought that was really interesting because I'd never known that antidepressants could help somebody manage their pain. I always knew stuff like you know acetaminophen, mm -hmm. ibuprofen, or morphine, for example. And I was really intrigued by that idea. I sort of recall thinking to myself, wow, I, this guy knows a lot and it. Maybe if I can know as much as he does with pain, that's probably going to be really a valuable skill to help a lot of folks. Then I became more interested. I started pursuing anesthesia and then going to pain clinics and starting to see other really novel approaches to managing pain. And that's how I got my start. Wow. Yeah, it's a, such a far-ranging, I guess, topic and so forth. So as I understand it, there are two types of chronic pain. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, chronic primary pain and secondary pain. Can we talk about that? So for instance, with chronic primary pain. Well, I, I think it's pain is so varied. And that's one of the challenges with pain is that it, it comes in so many different settings and presentations. 
Typically, you know, I, I would say chronic pain depends on what reference you go towards, but it can be anywhere from three months to six months of pain. Okay. And that's when we're going to start to say there's a chronic component to it. I think, you know, we would typically identify acute pain as being after an injury or an operation, for example, or some sort of other medical condition that presents in a painful way. It's when it turns to that chronicity that lasts three to six months or more is when we start to have challenges with the nervous system changing, folks starting to have mood changes or changes in their ability to work, for example, and that's when it evolves into this more encompassing concern for folks and how it affects their lives. Right. So you said, I mean, chronic pain, the definition is after three months. There's different definitions depending on what you read, but typically that's when we might expect chronicity to really take hold. Right. So obviously, as you said, like the severity of pain can vary wildly from person to person. Is there a way of measuring that? How do you sort of get a get a handle on that, on the severity? Great question. I just had a meeting with a big research pain consortium the other day, and, and, and we struggle with this as mm. well uh, in, in trying to quantify pain, because as mm. we say, pain is not just a biological experience. It is what we call a biopsychosocial concern. To measure pain, you know, we can be very straightforward and simplistic and say, well, you know, zero is no pain and 10 is the worst pain you could possibly imagine. Right. Where do you put yourself on that scale? Right. And then someone could say, well, I, I suppose I could say it's a six out of 10. But what does that really mean? Right. What does that mean uh, to me? Is it that a six out of 10 for me? If I were to somehow experience that person's pain, I don't know. Maybe it's a 10 or maybe it's a zero. I'm not sure. And what does that mean for that specific day? Do I catch the person on a great day, right? And, and then maybe on another day, it's a lot worse. But, you know, you have to consider more depth to those types of assessments. So, you know, if somebody says, well, I've got this terrible hand pain on my left hand. Well, I'm right-handed, so, you know, I can sort of do what I need to do in my work as a right-handed person. So maybe my left-hand pain maybe is rated as a 4 out of 10. But then if you take that same pain and that person's a concert pianist, is that pain really just a three or four out of 10? Probably not because that pain means something different to that person. So that pain maybe is an eight out of 10, for example, because it is such a profound alteration in their ability to do what they love and their employment and their source of income and security, their routine, their socialization with their musician colleagues, being a part of the band, right? So you really have to say quantification of pain is an extremely, extremely difficult thing to put your finger on right? Yeah. Because there's so much more to pain because it is a experience. It's a life issue that affects you. It affects your sleep. It affects your mood. It affects your family relationships. It affects your employment. You know, it affects your ability to concentrate, your ability to drive and, and such. So, you know, that's a big study in pain research is how do you quantify pain? You know, we have different questionnaires that not only go through the number rating of pain, but also the quality of pain. Is it burning, tingling, stabbing, aching, sharp shooting? When you interview a person for their pain condition, sometimes we get very interesting notions about what pain means to them. So they say, well, I have this terrible pain. It's in my low back. And I tell my doctor and they say, well, just do your physiotherapy and take your Tylenol. But doctor, do I have cancer? No one's ever told me that. 
say, oh, well, that's interesting. What, why, why would you say that? Well, you know, I just think that this could maybe be cancer. No mm. one's actually ever read my MRI to me, and they've never said that there's nothing there. And so sometimes, you know, you just have to sit down and understand what a patient or, or a person with pain thinks about their pain. What does it mean to them? And say, well, you know, well, let me tell you, let's go through this MRI together. And, you know, I just want to let you know that there's nothing really wrong there. There's nothing that's harming mm. you it's not cancer and say, that's all I wanted to know. And, wow. and then you can imagine maybe that pain scale, that pain intensity comes down because you know what, my gosh, thank God it's not cancer. I can live with this now. So the, the quantification and measurement of pain is very, very challenging, time consuming. But when you do see someone with pain, you do need to take the time to understand their thoughts about it. As you're saying, I mean, there are so many facets to pain, right? You're saying it's, it's a mental, physical emotional, maybe even spiritual sort of condition. Yes. And the treatments are gonna gonna vary wildly. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, just physical medical treatments first. Can we run through some of those? I mean, I guess it's everything from ultrasound, injections, steroid, I, I don't know, massage. Go yeah, ahead. <laughs> well, well, there's a lot. Well, well yeah. again, like as you say, you know, you correctly identified pain is a very broad experience for people. So when we think about like medical treatments, that's mm -hmm. when we talk about things like medications or injections, for example. And to be clear, our clinic really is a non-cancer pain clinic. So our approach might be different from another clinic's approach that is managing perhaps an illness that may have a certain life expectancy, for example, where your mm -hmm. focus is different. You want people to be comfortable. So what we want to do is make sure people can function as well. So there are lots of different medication types, depending on the kind of pain you're presenting with. Very commonly, people first think of maybe opioids. And of course, mm -hmm. that receives a lot of attention these days, given our opioid crisis. But, you know, typically opioids aren't something that we would go for necessarily. Okay. They tend to have more trouble for folks when they've been taking them for a long time. They have all sorts of side effects and then people get used to them. And then, in fact, sometimes they can make the pain worse, paradoxically. So common things to use, and again, depending on the pain, would be things that are known as anticonvulsants. So these are medications that may have previously been used to manage things like seizure disorders, but they have found their way into pain medicine because I tell people it's almost as if your nerves are having mini seizures and you're trying to calm them down to stop having them fire off painful signals to your brain all the time. So others, as I mentioned in my first experience with a great chronic pain doc, the family physician, are what are known as the pain active antidepressants. And those have a variety of ways of managing pain, such as changing the way in which nerves fire, perhaps in, in your hands or your fingers, if, mm. for example, you have diabetic nerve pain. But, you know, they also work on the circuitry in the brain that helps to stop incoming pain signals, for example. So your brain has a top-down system of controlling the incoming pain. And so sometimes those medications can really boost the strength of that brain's ability to do that and stop incoming pain. You know, we have other types of medications, over-the-counter things that sometimes we recommend because people don't realize they can be taking them. So acetaminophen or what's called the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, commonly ibuprofen, for example, mm -hmm. and just counseling people how to use them properly. Right. And so they don't get themselves into trouble, like getting a really bad stomach ulcer. Other things that we come across quite often now are the use of cannabinoid medications. Right. So it's widely available these days. So people do get them 
from dispensaries, for example, or licensed producers. But there is a prescription one that we can sometimes advise on and give people some direction on its use. Of course, we come across opioids all the time. Mm-hmm. There, there can be a place for them, but we do try to minimize their use or advise against them for long-term pain concerns. Other things that we're quite pleased to have at our clinic at St. Joe's are we have the availability of different types of injections. So we have x-ray guided injections to the spine. Among those types of procedures, sometimes we do use something called radiofrequency ablation, which is basically a type of a, uh, a burning. It's as if the needles hit, heat up at the tip and you can sort of cauterize nerves along the spine that might be causing someone to have spine pain. Mm. You know, and then we also have nerve blocks. I think the important thing to remind folks about injections is that typically they don't last a long time. You know, they could last hours, days, weeks, at best, maybe eight or 10 months, depending on the type of procedure you're doing and where the pain is. But typically the pain does tend to return. So, you know, you can do the procedure again, but, you know, we really need to use those procedures in context and in conjunction with other types of therapies such as physical therapy, cognitive therapy or counseling, occupational therapy and such. So, you know, we always try to use it in combination, but those would be some of the medical opportunities that are available for folks with chronic pain. And obviously we're seeing in light of this, the addiction problems we're seeing with opioids, uh, Dr. Bellingham, is there some kind of a a protocol that we have now for prescribing this sort of painkiller? Well, pain and substance use disorder is a continuum, and they're not mutually exclusive, obviously. You can have someone in terrible pain who also suffers from some type of substance use disorder. And so it's that spectrum that you you have to take on a person-by-person basis. So a one-size-fits-all protocol does not exist, but there are principles of responsible opioid management that physicians and other healthcare providers should be familiar with. Of course, we have national guidelines that sort of provide us with best guidance statements and recommendations for opioid use. So there is an opportunity for students to be educated and physicians and nurses and all sorts of healthcare providers to, to become re-familiarized with that. But ultimately, you know, when we talk about the use of opioids for chronic pain, the very simple acronym, or at least a mnemonic, it's called the five A's of opioid analgesia. First A is A, analgesia. When you use your medication to get pain relief, yes or no. And it's interesting how many people aren't sure how to answer that, right? You should be getting pain control if you are using an opioid, right? Sometimes people say, well, it kind of takes the edge off. And well, 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 wait a minute, is is your pain any better? Well, you know, I mean, you know, I can sit on the couch a bit longer. So, well, I don't know if that's the right answer. It doesn't sound as though it's really effective for your pain relief. The next A is activity. Well, when you take your medication, are you any more functional? Well, you know, sometimes say, well, yeah, you know, doctor, you know, when I take my opioid, I get about 20% pain relief, and then I'm able to get through the rest of my day. I can sort of work in my job and, you know, end of the day, it's really sore, but then I'm, I'm able to sort of recover and rest because I'm not doing my job. So, okay, great. So you're functional with the opioid A for activity. A for adverse effects such as constipation, you know, feeling sedated, sleeping at the wheel, for example, when you're at a red light, that's that's not good. So you want to make sure that you're always assessing the patient's side effect profile. I have some folks who have 
terrible constipation and you know it's just out of control for days and sometimes even a week or so so you have to get on top of that a for aberrant behavior or ways in which they're maybe not supposed to be using the medication you always screen for so you know are you chewing it are you taking it with alcohol are you crushing it to take it in some other way like injection that's pretty extreme but you always have to screen for these things and then lastly the affect or the mood changes well how are you doing is are you depressed or are you anxious or other things anyway so when you talk about protocol yes there's stuff out there but there's also principles of just good opioid stewardship that all physicians and nurses and healthcare professionals that should be aware of can we talk a little bit more about using cannabis as a treatment? Yeah, that's a huge topic, really. Number one, we don't really have great evidence for cannabis medications, full stop. You know, I mean, people will come to use these things because it's available that these days. So it's something that I do ask about so that we can talk a little bit more about and how it may interact with medications. That's more my concern is, you know, drug, drug interaction. So again, it, it's getting down to the, the principles like, well, you know, is this really healthy for you? I mean, we do have some researchers right now from cardiology who are looking at the concerns that inhaled uh, cannabis products have on inflammation and the risk of heart disease and stroke, which seem to be pretty profound, actually. So we tend to not really recommend necessarily those things. But you know, if I am to get involved in looking for other ways in which to help somebody. So, you know, legitimately people try a lot of different things and they have a lot of struggles with side effects or it just doesn't work. So we sort of go down sort of a, a ladder of options and sometimes cannabis, cannabinoids are on that step ladder. And the one that I would recommend is something, it's a, it's a medication, it's a synthetic form of THC called Navalone. We don't have any synthetic form of CBD, unfortunately, but you know, it's it's just like any other medication or controlled substance. It maybe has some opportunity for pain relief, maybe some sedation so you get a little bit more sleep in the evening. It's prescribed, so sometimes it's covered by a drug plan, which is huge, right? You know, think about these medications. It's a lot of money sometimes. So we can try it. We know how much you're getting when you take it in a prescription other than like the, you know, inhaled products. I don't really know how much you're getting. I mean, we do have studies on that stuff, but it's really hard to quantify. So there's a lot of like nuance and a lot of detail about the use of cannabinoids, but it's definitely part of a conversation for sure. Right. And so obviously the next question would be non-medical sort of treatments. Can we talk yeah. a little bit about that? I guess that's what are addressing more psychologicals in some cases or? Well, for sure. Yeah. And that exactly. So, I mean, I, you know, your, your questions are very, very good, you know, in terms of what's out there, but the real key message is that, you know, you combine all of this stuff, right? right. That's the, that's the secret. I suppose that's the, that's what gets people better. Hmm. So as I said, okay, so if we do an injection, we get somebody some pain relief for a couple of weeks or months, that's great. But then we get into the other things that we really want them to participate in, because these are the things that really last and stick. So things such as uh, physical therapy. So there are a lot of folks who will come to our clinic say, well, you know, I was told I can get an injection here. What do you have? And then I say, well, what have you done so far? Like, have you been able to do any physical therapy? And for lots of different reasons, sometimes people can't do it or can't, they don't have the resources or they didn't know. 
So we say, well, we can try this, but maybe just doing physical therapy at first for your low back pain is actually going to really do you a lot of good. Mm -hmm. So physical therapy, for example, will take time to really take a hold of. But the great thing about something like physical therapy is that you can learn to do it on your own so that you have control of your condition. So you're not putting the control into someone with a needle. So, you know, waiting for that appointment for that injection while you're in pain, physical therapy is a form of self-management, which we really stress. You have the control, you can do it, and you're gonna get better in time. It does take time and dedication, but it's out there. Other things, for example, occupational therapy that can help people to achieve their activities of daily living in different ways if they have a limitation imposed by their pain. But occupational therapists also talk about things like energy conservation or pacing. You know, one of my mentors in the Department of Physical Medicine, you know, one of the things he sometimes says is one of the worst days for someone who suffers from chronic pain is their best day. And you know why that is? It's because that's the day they clean the house. And then eventually, <laughs> you know, the, the pain just for days, if not weeks afterwards, they have this great big exacerbation. But that's where somebody such as an occupational therapist can come and say, let's talk about breaking down the activity so that you can get done what you want to get done, but not pay the price, right? And not be in bed for days afterwards. And so right. you have much more regulation of the pain, much more control, education, understanding of how to manage this condition on your own. Again, one of my other mentors, you know, likened it to some of the diabetes, you know, so diabetes, we have no cure for it. It's an education and a management type of chronic illness. So, you know, that same example about cleaning the house when you have a good pain day, it's like, well, if you, you know, have diabetes and then you decide to eat a chocolate cake, you, well, you can't really do that because you're going to suffer some uh, consequence. So it's about education, which is another big piece of chronic pain. So it's not just the physical therapy, occupational therapy, but education about managing pain and why do I, you still have pain? Uh, when your initial injury has healed. And that talks about perhaps that getting back to our primary versus secondary pain. Why does it persist when I've had my operation and everything was supposed to be fixed? Well, the nervous system is upset and there's lots of different changes that occur at the spinal cord and brain that sort of resonate and echo this pain for a long time that we have to have a better understanding of. So education can go a long way towards helping people understand what they're experiencing and therefore perhaps be a little bit more at ease, at least with knowing that there's nothing wrong that needs further investigation mm -hmm. or fixing. Mm -hmm. Social work, our psychologists in our clinic, you know, our social workers and psychologists are instrumental to education and taking folks through different types of cognitive therapies to view their pain in a different way right. or to help to manage distress a lot better. And it's very important to recognize that things like depression or anxiety can make pain treatments less effective. Hmm. And if we're able to help to manage depression and anxious symptoms more effectively, that in turn hopefully can improve the pain perception and the pain experience. The patient's attitude and, and mental approach is crucial. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, yes. Because, you know, if you think, you know, sometimes there are folks who have an anxious sort of maybe a disposition continuously sort of maybe survey their body for every for different sort of sensations, right? So what does this sensation mean? Is my stomach gurgly because I've got something wrong in my stomach that needs investigation? Or, you know, the, the, the thing is our bodies are very noisy, right? There's a lot of different sensations that they make. And if you are more prone to sort of 
you know, focusing on that and then considering there's something wrong and, and such, then that that's important to address because we have to sometimes accept that there are going to be sort of sensations there that we can't change that do not harm us, that we don't need to uh, ruminate on or magnify and become distressed by them. And then we can just move on and uh, focus on the goals that are meaningful for us and the things that make us happier rather than focusing on those things. And so that's where my colleagues come in. As an anesthetist, I don't have formal training in that, but that just sort of speaks to the importance of all of the people who work in a pain clinic that really make a difference for patients. So we, we really do rely on one another to provide that balanced approach to pain control. Right. So I guess you're, you're touching on ideas like meditation or mindfulness or something? Yes, absolutely. Mindfulness and, and meditation, you know, absolutely. Those would be things that would come up. Breathing exercises, acceptance and commitment therapy, for example, and education as well. You know, it's mm-hmm. as simple as that is like helping people understand what this pain stuff is all about. And I suppose one of the reasons for that is, I mean, I said at the outset that they refer to pain as the invisible disease. Is that part of it that often, you know, someone who's suffering chronic pain, you look at them and they look just fine. Is that somehow a a component of their suffering? The fact that it's not obvious. It's a massive issue. It it really (laughs) is. And we hear this so often in the clinic that it, it, it speaks to, you know, how people interact with others. People will say, well, I go to work or I see my family members. And if you look at me, you'd never know I had pain. And it really speaks to the social aspects of chronic pain. How do you communicate this to people where you would otherwise seem well? How do you communicate to people that I can't have that nice long walk in the park like we used to now and have them understand why I'm not Mm. joining them? You know, that and and that it really does affect people quite profoundly, you know, and comes up quite often. And again, this is part of what our great team at St. Joe's does is, you know, we have different workshops, for example, how to communicate to your family and your, your friends about your pain and what it means and some of the things that you can and can't do anymore, for example, and how to resolve those uh, relationships, which are so important to right. making sure people have a great quality of life. Right. So it, it is a family issue, right, in that it's affecting the people around the patient, and you have to somehow deal with that, right? Oh, absolutely. It, it's, you know, if someone was used to doing a certain role in the home, I don't know, and then they can't do that anymore. Well, why can't you do that anymore? You look fine. You know, why are you on the couch or why are you still in bed? It, it takes a lot of counseling and a lot of education for not just uh, the patient, but the family members as well. Say, well, this is what's going on. This is chronic pain. Although we can't see it, it's a real phenomenon. These are the reasons why someone might have persisting pain after an operation, for example, and helping them to understand the person's condition as well. And like you said, I guess, like diabetes, chronic pain can't be cured, right? But is there a, a level of wellness or pain-freeness that you can aim for? What I mean, how much can we sort of help people solve the issue? Right. So that's a great question. It's very complicated. Absolutely. If we were just to talk about medications, and this is an important message as well that we really try to aim to teach our our, our folks who come to the clinic about, is that a medication at best is going to give you about 20 or 30% improvement in your pain intensity. Okay. You know, and that's it. I mean, you can get folks who respond more than that, which is great. We'd love to see it, but that's the honest truth. 
So we have to make certain to set the expectations that we can't cure or conquer or suppress indefinitely chronic pain. It's going to be something that needs to be managed. So again, I I go back to the example of the concert pianist who has left-handed pain. You know, it profoundly affects this person's ability to function and their, their happiness and, you know, their identity. But it may not be so troublesome for someone who doesn't really you know, use their left hand for their vocation as much. So we have to take that into account as well. So, you know, things such as, you know, looking at different ways of moving uh, so that you can achieve your goals is very important. So it's not so much about reducing pain to a specific level as it is about learning to manage the pain and learning to manage exacerbations and the distress associated with the pain so that you can move on and you know, although pain will still be there, unfortunately, to a certain extent, you still have greater satisfaction with your role in life, your quality of life, your ability to enjoy things in life as well. So there are lots of different facets to it. But self-management and coming at peace with the condition and learning to enjoy life despite it is really what the goal should be. And are there any sort of new developments or treatments on the horizon that show potential? Well, you know, there's always uh, new different drug trials. There are different ways in which, you know, we can maybe approach pain as a team differently and such. But, you know, there are lots of different things that are being explored. This really speaks to the opportunities that London has at the different research labs and such that are really working with our clinic members to do some investigations. For example, we have a a great opportunity to work with a researcher who is studying the use of transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is basically a type of procedure where I suppose electromagnetic pulses stimulate different parts of the brain and it's non-invasive. There's this device that tends to sort of be targeted appropriately to the right area of the brain that will try to modulate the way in which it's working. You'd certainly have to interview Dr. Shabrun about this because I can't speak to it any more eloquently, but it has been investigated for things such as depression. And we do have a colleague in our clinic who's working with this researcher to see whether or not it can help to improve chronic low back pain after injections, for example. So there are lots of different things out there, lots of different opportunities. Is there something that we know that's just on the horizon that's going to, you know, maybe really profoundly change the way in which we're managing pain at the moment? Unfortunately, no, but we are definitely dedicated here at Western and, you know, the the St. Joe's to work with researchers so that we can get closer to that day. Right. Maybe a sort of obvious but practical question, I guess, for listeners out there who are suffering from chronic pain. How does one get involved with the pain management program at St. Joe's? Is that I guess, a referral process? Yeah, so so you, we do get a lot of referrals and our hope is that they typically will come through their family physicians. So that's, okay. that's a challenge because of course we all know family physicians are very valuable physicians and uh, you know they, it's hard to get one if you don't have one unfortunately but I know there are different avenues to go about trying to do so. But yes, typically we do receive referrals and our hope is the family physicians place them in because we like to link back to the family docs so that we can discuss about the care and we will go through the referral and hopefully we can accept the person. 
specifically, you know, our clinic, again, it doesn't see all types of pain, of course. We don't see folks with palliative care or cancer pain. That's a definite, its own specialty and its own perspectives on how to best manage, for example. You know, headache is something that London does have. We have some headache specialists, so they have their own specific training and focuses. So those are the experts. So we typically don't see chronic headache as well. But yes, typically, if you do have chronic pain, we'd really uh, ask you to seek a referral, perhaps to your family physician who can send in a consultation. But I do want to speak to the fact that we do, we are a part of something called the Ontario Chronic Pain Network. And recently, I'll put a plug in for a really great website called Power Over Pain. It's poweroverpain.ca. And that provides people with a lot of education, support, online seminars that are live as well, about all these different facets that I've been talking about. And we recognize that it is difficult to get into chronic pain clinics, just given the very large demand. But this initiative is to help to disseminate that knowledge and, you know, messages for best practices in managing pain to folks who may not have easy access to a chronic pain clinic. So I'd really encourage uh, any of the listeners who who would like to get more information to visit this website. Again, it's poweroverpain.ca, and it's been a collaborative effort with many of the academic pain clinics in Ontario. Perfect. We can post that link on our website link. Wow, a fascinating topic, and hopefully it's helpful to our listeners out there who are suffering from chronic pain. Dr. Bellingham, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us, and join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London. Or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy.